1: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you, of course, remember back in our mental floss days, and actually this was our very early mental floss days, we did this issue called the most important questions in the history of the universe.
2: (laughs) I mean, how could I forget? Like, we answered some of the biggest, most important, most life-changing questions in the history of the universe, like... uh, can a pregnant woman drive in a carpool lane? Or is there a most effective move in rock, paper, scissors? It was really important. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I honestly, I don't know how the world lived without knowing these answers. But <laughs> one of the other reader questions that we answered was why does Hawaii have interstate highways? Because, you know, as cool as it may sound to be able to drive across the ocean to one of the Hawaiian islands, that's not possible, obviously. Uh-huh. Yeah. As it turns out, this goes back to the Eisenhower days and specifically the Dwight D. Eisenhower System of Interstate and National Defense Highways. And this is when the funding came to build Hawaii's interstates, H1, H2, and H3. And they were largely built as a way to move supplies between military bases more easily. So the interstate designation was really just a way to recognize that the roads had been built from federal funding.
2: I mean, Hawaii has such an interesting history, and I've had so many other questions. I've really been looking forward to this episode.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And it's one of those places we think we know more about than we actually do. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about some of Hawaii's fascinating history. We'll talk about some of the origins of several things we associate with Hawaii and share some facts about the islands beyond just the beautiful beaches. So let's dive in. there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof blast, wow, it is actually kind of hard to look at. <laughs> rocking the loudest Hawaiian shirt I think I have ever seen. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil.
2: It is truly a stunning amount of parrots for a single shirt. <laughs> and for uh, Gosh. everybody listening, I, I do want to point out that Will did use air quotes just now when he said Hawaiian shirt, just so you know.
1: Yeah, trust me, I'm well aware that most people in Hawaii tend to wear way fewer parrot shirts than Tristan does, but this actually goes <laughs> back to something I noticed while doing research for today's show, and that's how so many of the things people associate with Hawaii, you know, the tropical shirts, ukulele music, pineapples, I mean, these really have more to do with the foreign influence of the colonialists and other outsiders than they do with native Hawaiian culture. And that's what got me thinking, it'd be fun to take a closer look at some of the most iconic aspects of Hawaiian really try to get a sense of where they came from. You know, that way we can get past the touristy conceptions of Hawaii as this dream vacation spot or real-life Garden of Eden and and learn more about what life on these islands is
2: really like. Definitely. So, so to start, I, I think we should give a quick look on terms for how we'll be talking about the people who live in Hawaii, because it's actually a little trickier than it is for other states. Like, I'm a Georgian and you're an Alabamian, and that's just because of where we live, but In Hawaii, the term Hawaiian is generally reserved for people of native Hawaiian ancestry. In other words, it's those people who descended from the indigenous people who migrated to the islands from Polynesia over a thousand years ago. And today, people in Hawaii who don't share that ancestry, they go by a different name. So even if they were born and raised in the state, they're known as Hawaii residents or else simply as locals. And that's something we'll try to keep in mind today. Right. And that distinction will actually come in
1: handy for this next part, because I do want to circle back to these Hawaiian shirts for, for just a minute. You know, d- despite Tristan's best effort, there's no denying that colorful Hawaiian shirts or Aloha shirts, as they're sometimes called, they're widely viewed by many as tacky. And I mean, they've even kind of become this visual shorthand for the stereotype of, you know, the crass, clueless tourist. But I was looking into the history of these wearable postcards, as one marketer called them, and It turns out the shirts do have some connections to the long-standing cultural traditions. It's just not quite Hawaii's.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, didn't most Polynesian voyagers skip the whole shirt thing entirely? Like, it'd be hard to imagine them wearing long, flowing shirts while hopping from island to island. Yeah, so the real story
1: is that back in the 1880s, American plantation owners had already settled into the still-sovereign kingdom of Hawaii. And... As their grip on the local economy extended, these plantation owners started recruiting low-wage laborers, mostly from Asian countries. Now, the majority of this influx was made up of Japanese immigrants, and the brightly colored kimonos that they brought with them actually served as the foundation for what would later become the Hawaiian shirt. But actually, the Japanese culture wasn't the only influence. You've got the Chinese immigrants that were bringing these colorful silks. You had the Filipino families that were adding a more relaxed look to the mix by introducing to the islands these kind of these long tunics that
2: are traditionally worn, untucked. So do the shirts actually have any Native Hawaiian influence at all? Like, what about those patterns? So as the islands became more and more dominated by
1: sugar and pineapple plantation, Native fashion really had to adapt to life in the fields. So while most Hawaiians had still worn clothes made from lightweight tapa cloth prior to the 1800s, now they needed something more durable. And so the solution was a new kind of fabric that had been introduced by the British and American soldiers, and it was this kind of this blue and white checkered denim that the natives took to calling palaka, and that's the Hawaiian word for frock. The natives put their own spin on it as well. I mean, they cut off the shirt tails and gave the palaka a straight hem so it could be worn outside the pants.
2: Okay, so now I guess we have most of the characteristics in place, right? Like we've got these loose-fitting shirts, they're worn untucked, and And they're also made out of bright, silky, colorful fabrics, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so the only thing left to do was shorten the sleeves and liven up the patterns. And that's exactly what a University of Hawaii student named Gordon Young did back in the 1920s. Or at least that's what his mother's dressmaker did. Apparently, she worked with Gordon to develop specially tailored shirts from out of cotton yukata cloth. And that's the fabric typically used to make kimonos. Now, these custom shirts were mostly white with black or blue patterns depicting bamboo stalks or geometric patterns. So, you know, think of these as the forerunner of the prototype for the gaudier Hawaiian shirts that we know today. And so from there, Hawaii resident tailors picked up on the new fashion in the 30s and and really began to popularize these Hawaiian shirts or Aloha sportswear. and, And they were using the same kimono material that Gordon had used.
2: But you're skipping the important parts. Like, what about the pineapple prints? (laughs) Well,
1: you know, for those brighter colors and tropical prints, we we have to look to artists like Elsie Doss. And in 1936, she was commissioned by a local store to create these 15 original Hawaiian prints to be used on a new batch of Aloha shirts. And then you had other artists that followed her lead and also started drawing inspiration from the islands where they lived. And so pretty soon, Hawaiian shirts started to look a lot more tropical. Actually, I found this great article on the subject by an author named Dale Hope. And as he explained, Elsie and others started to create their own designs, substituting what had traditionally been Japanese-style motifs and prints on the imported fabrics. Diamond head was substituted for Mount Fuji, Japanese pine trees changed to coconut trees, and thatched huts with ocean scenes and surfers. Fish and flowers replaced bamboo.
2: Well... I mean, that description definitely makes the whole wearable postcards thing ring true, right? And since tourists are the ones buying postcards, it it does make sense that the shirts would play best to that crowd. I am curious, though, what do natives and locals think about them? Because I, I imagine there are some mixed feelings over something that, on the one hand, has very little to do with Hawaiian culture, but on the other, still brings in tons of revenue for the islands.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And, and for the most part, I think you're right about those mixed feelings. I mean, the kind of, you know, making lemons into lemonade mindset is really something that pops up throughout Hawaiian history. And part of that's the nature of colonization in general, but it's also just being an island civilization. You know, the visitors are constantly coming and going and, and kind of shaping and reshaping bits of culture along the way. So when it comes to the Hawaiian shirt, there was some pushback eventually. Actually, at one point, the shirts were completely banned for employees of Hawaii's city, state, and federal offices, and even from banks and a lot of corporate offices. And the thinking was that the laid-back shirts would promote sloppiness at work. So
2: I'm guessing uh, casual Fridays aren't a thing in Hawaii, huh?
1: Well, it's funny that you mention that because I actually read about this big push in the 60s from Honolulu's fashion industry. And it was called Operation Liberation. Uh, <laughs> and it was basically a campaign to overturn the ban and, and get office workers in Hawaii to start wearing lighter, more comfortable clothing, you know, especially when you think about that humid climate that they have there. And so part of this centered on the Aloha shirts. And in fact, some manufacturers even promoted the movement by giving out two free shirts to every member of the state Senate and House of Representatives.
2: I like that. So did this
1: bribe actually work? It kind of did, yeah. So by 1966, the government had relaxed its stance and even began encouraging employees to wear the colorful shirts on the last day of the work week, and these were dubbed Aloha Fridays. Then once word of the practice spread to the rest of the states, it was given a more continental name, and Casual Fridays were born.
2: Oh, that's really amazing. So uh, if you don't mind, I actually want to switch gears now and talk about a product of the islands whose Hawaiian roots are a lot more clear-cut And that's surfing. So the sport went mainstream thanks largely to early 20th century athletes like Duke Kahanamoku. And he was a five-time Olympic swimming medalist who later became a surfing ambassador. And that's when he started giving surfing demonstrations along the southern coast in the 1910s. But while Duke is widely known as the father of surfing today... His ancient ancestors in the Polynesian Islands actually practiced the sport long before him. And to them, it was much more than just a sport. In the Hawaiian Islands, uh, riding waves came to carry this social and even religious importance. For example, when Hawaiians found a tree that they thought would make for good surfboards, they would leave offerings at its base before carving it up. And surfers also sought the help of special priests called kahunas who would help them pray for choice waves and even give thanks after surviving an especially nasty wipeout. Oh, that's pretty interesting. But it was still a sport then, too, right? Definitely. So ancient wave sliders would compete against each other over stuff like who could ride the fastest or farthest or who could catch the biggest wave. And everybody got in on it. Like, all Hawaiians were free to surf regardless of age, gender, or even social class. But to be fair, there there was a little classism when it came to the kind of board you could ride. So most people rode these alaya boards, which were pretty thin. They weren't too big and, and somewhat comparable to modern short boards. But then there were also these ones called olo boards, and they were these like humongous planks that only chieftains were allowed to use. And honestly, I have no idea how they rode these things because olo boards were about twice as long as today's longboards, which means you know um, they were like eighteen to twenty feet on average. It's crazy. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Just
1: try to imagine standing on something that's eighteen feet long in the ocean. It's a uh... I don't know. I can't imagine doing that. But all right. So, did you get any sense for how old surfing is? Because it sounds like several centuries, at least, right?
2: So nobody knows for sure when this wave sliding got its start. But the first written account of it goes back to the 1770s, and it was clear even then that the practice had already been around for a very long time. In fact, I read about this discovery a couple years back where archaeologists uncovered a series of petroglyphs that supposedly depict people surfing, and the figures were carved into sandstone along the coast of the island of Oahu, and experts believe the markings are about 400 years old or so, which is about 200 years before Europeans first made contact with Hawaii. All right, so
1: there's no doubt about it then. I mean, surfing is a true part of native Hawaiian culture, and just to bring this full circle, I actually learned while reading up on these Aloha shirts that they share the same point of origin with board shorts, which is that palaka cotton stuff I mentioned earlier. And in the early days of surf culture in the 20th century, the serious surfers would go to these specialty Japanese tailor shops in Hawaii, and they'd order these custom fitted shorts made from palaka cotton. So just like with the field workers of old Hawaii, these surfers needed something
2: comfortable yet durable. And once again, palaka fit the bill. That's pretty cool. And I know that a native Hawaiian would have their own thoughts about this, but as an outsider, I do really love how aspects of these different times in Hawaii's history tend to overlap and blur in places. It's kind of a testament to the people of Hawaii, both to their endurance and to their ability to sort of roll with the punches in order to preserve what matters to them.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think another interesting example of that overlap is in the folklore surrounding the islands themselves Like take Pele, for instance. As the Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, Pele is the subject of all sorts of legends. Some of them connect with native Hawaiian mythology, and some of them are completely made up just for the tourists.
2: (laughs) Well, I definitely want to spend a few minutes dissecting which is which. But before we do, let's take a quick break.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
2: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the colorful but complicated history of Hawaii. So, Will, I I know you've got a bizarre modern legend about Pele that you're itching to talk about, but... First, I, I did want to share some of the real traditional folklore she's connected with. For instance, did you know Pele can't stand pork products?
1: <laughs> I can't say that I knew she had feelings for them
2: one way or the other, but but what's the story here? Why does she not like pork? Well, th- this comes from an old myth where Pele had a falling out with one of her uh, one-time boyfriends, this guy Kamapua. And you know Kamapua, right? Like, he's the Hawaiian demigod who's half man, half pig. Oh oh that Kamapua. Sure, sure, of course, I know it. <laughs> okay, so apparently when the pair split, Pele chased her old bow with a lava flow until he's cornered on the windward side of Honolulu. And then as the lava creeps closer, Kamapua lied down on the ground and began to chant. And this causes the earth and the trees to rise up and hold back the lava until suddenly it rains and cools everything down. So then is like, all right, I guess I can't kill you. So how about we just agree to stay on separate sides of the island? And this sounds great to Kamapua, so he settles in the lush green windward side, and Pele takes the dry, arid leeward side. <laughs> oh,
1: fair enough. So so you're saying Pele's still holding a grudge against swine because of this?
2: hmm So to this day, like, visitors are warned not to bring pork over the Pali Highway that connects the leeward side to the windward side. And since Kamapua was part pig, hauling pork is a symbolic way of bringing him back to Pele's turf. And if you try to do that, Pele will do her best to stop you. Like, you might be called away on some emergency, or your car could break down along the way, or... If an old woman with a dog should appear during your journey, that's actually Pele offering you an easy way to dispose of your forbidden pork. You could just feed it to the hungry pup and be on your way.
1: <laughs> I mean, I do kind of like that with all her fiery wrath, Pele still can't stand the thought of people wasting pork. I mean... To be honest, she's a pretty considerate wrathful deity in a way.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So if you're looking to get on her good side, Pele apparently loves gin or any quality whiskey. Or at least that's what (laughs) uh, one longtime Hawaii resident said. Because uh, for nearly 40 years, this woman named Leitris tried to keep the Mauna Loa volcano from erupting by routinely tossing bottles of gin into it while flying in a small charter plane. So this is what Leitris told a reporter in the 80s. She said... Quote, I've come to respect Madame Pele. I have a feeling that she wants to drink.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't say my blame or given some of the rumors people have spread about her. And actually, for instance, one of these, have you heard of Pele's curse? Mm
2: -mm.
1: It's this idea that the goddess will inflict bad luck on any visitor who takes rock, sand, or other natural artifacts from the Hawaiian islands. But while your Pele pork legend got its start as a native Hawaiian tall tale, Pele's Curse is actually just this modern myth that was likely started by a resentful park ranger.
2: So now that you explained it, I actually do remember reading something about this for our park ranger episode. Like it was a warning they gave tourists to try and keep them from taking home all these volcanic rocks as keepsakes, right?
1: Yeah, that's the theory. Although some people maintain it was actually something that tour guides told visitors so they wouldn't drag a bunch of rocks and sand onto their buses and places like that. But Regardless, the curse has been propagated by guidebooks and travel websites, and this has gone on for decades now, so much so that hundreds of visitors now send thousands of pounds of rocks back to Hawaii every single year just in an attempt to ease their guilty consciences and reverse their bad fortune.
2: I like that once again there's like an easy way to break the curse. I feel like Pele is just a big softy. (laughs) Maybe so. But, you know, when the legend first started circulating
1: in the mid-1940s, there was no mention of returning what you stole as a way to change your fortune. And all that bit of wishful thinking was actually added later by tourists who were just desperate for a way to explain and and maybe fix the problems in their lives. So now all these packages are frantically sent to Hawaiian post offices and town halls, even directly to the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And (laughs) a lot of the time... The bits of rock or, or sand, they're accompanied by these heartfelt letters, and they describe the bad luck that the senders hope to undo. And some of this stuff is really heavy, like you find people writing about bouts of cancer or divorce or jail time, and then you get these other letters which are just hard not to laugh at. Like, I came across this one that reads, we won the $600,000 lottery. We would have won the $2 million lottery if it wasn't for this. Please take the rocks back before more bad luck. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, it does sound a bit like a double-edged sword, right? Like, on uh, on one hand, some letters are probably going to be pretty entertaining or maybe even inspiring. But on the other hand, like, how frustrating must it be to have to deal with this endless stream of stolen rocks and apology letters from guilty tourists just coming your way? <laughs> oh, totally. But, you know, I do want to mention that even though Pele's
1: curse is a modern invention, it it does have some roots in real Hawaiian mythology. I read this great piece in Pacific Standard where... They talk to the director of the University of Hawaii at Manoa Center for Hawaiian Studies, and she helps trace some of the connections in this way. She says, Rocks in Hawaii have their own personalities, male and female. They don't like to be disturbed. Rocks from the volcano are made by Pele, and they are kapu. That is, they have a kind of sanctity, and it's definitely bad luck to take them away from the volcano.
2: I mean, that's interesting. But in this case, if returning the items doesn't break the curse— does that mean people are just stuck with their bad luck of uh, missing winning the lottery by millions forever?
1: Well, I wondered about that, too. And I actually found some pretty sage advice on the subject. And this was from a retired historian at the University of Hawaii. And she says, if you took a stone, perhaps unknowingly or without meaning disrespect, I would recommend a ceremony rather than sending the rocks back. Just say, release me from this kapu. Just let it go. hmm huh.
2: Well, that's definitely a better option and a cheaper one than mailing rocks to park rangers. But, you know, (laughs) given the way Hawaii became a state in the first place, there is something sort of ironic about sending back these stolen pieces of Hawaii back to, you know, this island that was taken away from the people.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. And and without getting too dour, I do think we should address the elephant in the room and, and talk a little bit about Hawaii became part of the U.S. to begin with because this year actually marks the 125th anniversary of the 1893 overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. Now, prior to that time, Hawaii was recognized internationally as a sovereign nation. It was under the rule of Queen Liliokulani, and she'd inherited the throne from her brother just two years earlier. But Hawaii's fertile volcanic soil and close proximity to the states had long made it this tempting target for a coup. Still, the Hawaiian kingdom might have been able to maintain its sovereignty if not for interference from Sanford Dole and his fellow American businessmen.
2: I know. This is crazy to think about because for anyone wondering, yes, this is uh, Sanford Dole as in the Dole Food Company, or you might know him as the world-famous pineapple producers, but he and other American plantation owners were making a killing in Hawaii already, and that was thanks to their enormous crops of sugar and coffee and pineapples there. But as a way to exert even more control over the kingdom— Dole partnered with these other businessmen and lawyers to form what they called the Hawaiian League. And in 1887, the group sent this armed militia to David Kalakaua, the king of Hawaii at the time. And this was at gunpoint. The king was actually forced to sign the bayonet constitution, which transferred most of the monarchy's power to the legislature which is a ruling body whose elections were already being rigged to favor non-Hawaiians. And a few years later, when Luleokulani took the throne, she actually refused to honor the Bayonet Agreement and instead tried to build support for a new constitution, one that would return power to the monarchy.
1: Which, you know, of course, is something Dole and the other American businessmen were not happy about. And so that's why in January of 1893, this so-called Committee of Safety It was led by Dole, and they gathered in wait near the Queen's Palace. Soon they were joined by 300 Marines from the USS Boston, and they'd been called in to protect Dole's committee by the U.S. Minister of Hawaii, and it was a really pivotal move. So the action provided this tacit approval for the coup from the U.S. government, and it also left Queen Lily Okalani with no choice but to surrender in order to avoid outright war.
2: Yeah, and the part that always gets me is that she never gave up hope that the U.S. government would come to its senses and recognize her as Hawaii's constitutional monarch. But, of course, that never happened. so the president at the time was Benjamin Harrison, and he was all for annexing the Hawaiian Islands after the coup. And although Grover Cleveland objected to the whole affair, once he took office, he actually failed to stop this takeover of Hawaii he did recommend the queen be restored to her throne, but Congress ultimately rejected the proposal. And instead, Sanford Dole took control of the illegal provisional government that he helped install in Hawaii. He even declared himself the de facto president of what he started to call the Republic of Hawaii.
1: Yeah, the whole thing is really bizarre, and especially when you consider the rest of the world was watching as this unfolded. And you know, Even our own president admitted that the takeover had been illegal. I mean, listen to these lines from an account President Cleveland later wrote of this whole ordeal. He said, the provisional government owes its existence to an armed invasion by the United States. By an act of war, a substantial wrong has been done.
2: It is wild to hear that and to know that nothing was ever done to fix it. And in fact, just the opposite, because it was the administration right after Cleveland that declared Hawaii a U.S. territory And of course, about 60 years later, it officially became the 50th state. But before we get into any of that or the amazing ways Hawaii and the U.S. have influenced each other, let's take a quick break.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. You have the experience now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with purdue global Purdue's online university for working adults you know you're worth it we do too so don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu
4: l-a-s-i-k lasik.com have a ton of questions about lasik you're not alone
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
2: Okay, well, so give us the bad news. Who else has colonized Hawaii besides the Americans? All right, well, it's not so much who else as it is what else. Because despite the fact that
1: the islands are over 2,000 miles from the nearest continent, They've actually been colonized over and over throughout history. It's just that most of the time it's far-flung plants and animals doing the colonizing and not humans. Mm. And so the net result of this is biodiversity beyond your wildest dreams, but sometimes at the sad cost of the island's own indigenous species.
2: Yeah, I remember hearing some stats about how many endangered species there are in Hawaii, and the numbers were pretty insane. Like, when you added up all the plants and animals and insects on the list, it was something like, 500 different endangered species just in Hawaii?
1: Yeah, I was looking at some of those numbers on hawaii.gov, and according to the state's forestry and wildlife division, the islands contain roughly 44% of our entire country's endangered and threatened plant species. Huh. And that's despite the fact that Hawaii accounts for less than 1% of the total landmass in the U.S., I mean, it really points to just how frequently foreign species have muscled their way into the Hawaiian ecosystem, not to mention the domino effect damage that sometimes causes for other species. It's it's really a pretty tricky problem.
2: No kidding. Like, did you hear about this invasive species of tiny frogs called the koki? Apparently, the little guys are wreaking havoc on Hawaii's big island. I, I guess they're native to Puerto Rico, but scientists think a few found their way over in the 1980s, probably by hiding out in some potted plants. Anyway, they've just exploded ever since because there aren't any natural predators to help control the population. And in fact, one study reported that the Koki population in Hawaii is now three times greater than the one in Puerto Rico, which means there are now between 10,000 and 50,000 frogs per acre on the Big Island. Good Lord. I mean, that's like plague-level amount of frogs. It is.
1: All right, so just to play devil's advocate on this, like, let's assume that I love the idea of having frogs absolutely everywhere. So is, is there another downside to this?
2: <laughs> well, for one thing, the thriving frogs have put a serious damper on the island's once plentiful bug population, including a few of those endangered species we've been talking about. And some biologists are even worried that the lack of bugs could cause native bird species to starve. And of course, there's also the fact that the frogs are driving down property values, which is always a nuisance for humans.
1: Boy, it sounds like these things are pretty much everywhere. Like, are they decreasing property values all over the island? I mean, because remember, I love frogs everywhere. (laughs) So
2: condos on the coast are going for super cheap prices. I actually might need to look into this. Well, before you sign any deeds, you should probably know one other thing about cookie frogs. And that's that despite the fact that they're only about the size of a quarter, they constantly emit this high-pitched cry that can reach up to 90 decibels, which is about the volume of a lawnmower or a motorcycle that's a few yards away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, and it's actually where the frogs get their name, Koki. Like, the annoying sound that they make sounds a lot like Coquie. So in areas that are overrun with frogs, the property values are taking a big hit. And it's because everybody knows that whoever winds up living there is never going to get a good night's sleep again. You did such a
1: great impression of their noise. It sounds just like coquete. (laughs) Except higher pitch, I think. Right, right. That does sound like a nightmare. Like, are the locals doing anything to combat the problem or have they just kind of thrown the towel in?
2: Yeah, I mean, people used to hunt them back when the problem first started to kind of try to control it. And this was around the mid-2000s. But it quickly became clear that that was never going to work. And nowadays, most people concentrate on containing the frogs to certain areas and try to prevent them from expanding deeper into the rainforest. And apparently there's also a contingent of folks who try to catch the coqui and ship them back to Puerto Rico. But again, uh, it's kind of a losing battle. Yeah, you
1: might be right about that because, you know, the frog troubles actually sound a lot like another case I read about. This is over on the island of Kauai. Apparently, the whole place is just loaded with these feral chickens, and scientists say it's probably because of 1992's Hurricane Iniki. The storm tore through Kauai, and in the process, it also released a ton of chickens from people's backyard coops. And these domestic birds fled to the island's dense forest, and They reverted back to this wild state and began mating with remnants of Kauai's Polynesian jungle fowl population. And again, due to the lack of natural predators, the chickens thrived to the point that there were thousands and thousands of them spread all over the island. (laughs) Well, I'm delighted by the idea of a chicken island, but how do
2: the residents feel about this?
1: Well, they were more than a little bit annoyed at first, and especially when they realized that the chickens seemed to lack all sense of time and would just randomly crow at all hours of the day, though not at the 90 decibels, thankfully. But you know, just like with the frogs, people eventually grew to accept them as a fact of life. And it's actually kind of that same lemonade from lemons mentality that we talked about earlier with the Hawaiian shirts and other things. But you know, like having chickens all over the place isn't ideal. I mean, they're loud and they're dirty, but... On the bright side, they keep harmful pests in line, and the tourists are completely charmed by these wildfowl running around. So, you know, the locals will describe the chickens as everything from beautiful birds to these god-awful rats with wings, and everybody (laughs) can at least agree that they're great for moving merchandise, though.
2: Can I just say that while I totally get how annoying it would be to have some island-hopping animal run amok your ecosystem, like— I do like the idea that these different islands have different animals associated with them.
1: Yeah, I mean, annoyances aside, I, I think it is fun that certain islands are just completely stocked with their own signature animals, like the big island is the frog kingdom, Kauai is the chicken coast, and there's also <laughs> Lanai, which is this tiny Hawaiian island that boasts a population of, I think it's only about 3,000 people, but it's also home to four or 500 feral cats. You know, while being stranded on a tiny island teeming with feral cats sounds like pretty much the worst thing imaginable to me, I can still appreciate the fact that it exists, you know, as long as I'm far, far away from it.
2: (laughs) So, you know, we've talked a lot about colonizing species that have made themselves at home on the islands, but I do want to shift the focus back to the native side of things and talk just a little bit about the Hawaiian parrotfish.
1: You mean the uh, these are the creepy fish with the beaks, right?
2: Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not the best poster boy for the islands, but, uh, you know, those islands wouldn't be the same without the parrotfish. And more specifically, their prized beaches would be little more than bare volcanic rock. Without
1: parrotfish? So uh, why, why is this the case?
2: Okay, so this probably won't win you over on parrotfish, but you know those beak-like teeth that you find off-putting? Well, those are actually used to gnaw away at algae that grow on coral, which happens to be the parrotfish's favorite snack. And the problem is, sometimes the fish accidentally nibble off a piece of coral and wind up ingesting its calcium carbonate by mistake. And because the parrotfish can't digest the bulk of the substance, it eventually excretes it as sand.
1: Wait, so you're saying that's the sand that winds up on Hawaii's beaches? Like, there's no way. I
2: mean, how much sand could a fish possibly poop out? So it's somewhere around 800 pounds per fish per year, according to this. uh, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. This is according to a marine biologist named uh, Ling Ong. And in an interview for Wired, she pointed out that, quote, in places like Hawaii where we have very little terrestrial input of sand, Almost all of our sand is of biological origin. So I like to tell people that the sand you're standing on in Hawaii has probably gone through the gut of something. It'll have gone through the gut of a parrotfish, a sea urchin, or some kind of worm. Well, I mean, strangely enough, turning fish poop
1: into beautiful sandy beaches, it does seem like a pretty fitting metaphor for the Hawaiian approach to all of its problems, really. Because while native Hawaiians and residents of Hawaii have, have faced their share of injustices and hardships over the years... They've always managed to foster some of the most vibrant cultures amidst some of the most stunning environments in the world. And that alone makes me proud that Hawaii is part of my country, even if, you know, I'm not always thrilled about how it wound up that way.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And also, don't forget, Hawaii is the state that gave the world pogs. So that alone makes it worthy of praise. So I'm not so sure about your love of stackable
1: cardboard circles, but um, who knows? Maybe you can win me over with some facts in today's Fact Off. Fact Off All right, Mango. So I remember you were a big fan of the TV show Hawaii Five O, or at least <laughs> I like to tell people that you were a fan of Hawaii Five O. And many of our listeners may know this is where referring to police as Five O comes from. But I actually didn't realize that the show was called Hawaii Five O simply because Hawaii was the fiftieth state to join the country. I don't know how this never occurred to me.
2: I know me either. So uh, this is my fact: uh, the seventh largest island in Hawaii is owned by two guys, and they're actually brothers. They inherited it from their grandmother who had purchased it from the kingdom of Hawaii, and this was way back in 1864, for around $10,000 in gold. Obviously, that's a ton of money, but these brothers still own it. And speaking of a ton of money, the U.S. has reportedly tried to buy back the island from the brothers for about a billion dollars, and they've turned it down.
1: God, that is a ton of money. I think I would accept a billion dollars for an island if if I owned an island. (laughs) So I I forget, are you a fan of Hawaiian pizza? Yeah, I am. Me too. Well, we've mentioned this before, but it was invented in Canada by a couple of Greek guys. But I feel like we need to add a fact to that, and because you can really never have enough good facts about Hawaiian pizza. (laughs) And that's the fact that it's the most popular style of pizza in Australia. That actually accounts for around 15% of all their pizza
2: sales. So have you heard about the time the U.S. government burned $200 million in Hawaiian cash? This was way back in the 1940s, not long after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. government started worrying about what happened if Japan invaded Hawaii. And one of the things they thought about was the money on the islands. If Japan invaded the island and then took all the cash there, how would the government know where the cash had come from when they decided to use it? So to protect against this, the U.S. actually recalled all paper money in Hawaii and asked everyone to trade their bills in for others that had the word Hawaii stamped on it. So then what to do with that $200 million they'd managed to collect from the people? They actually decided to burn it, and they did this in uh, crematoriums and in furnaces around the island, and only a tiny number of the bills are still in circulation. But if you manage to get your hands on a $20 Hawaii overprint bill from that time, it's actually worth about $4,000 today.
1: Wow. I had never heard that story before. All right, so a quick one here. Hawaii is the only U.S. state to have two official languages. You've got English and Hawaii. Interestingly, the language only has 13 letters, and every word ends with one of five vowels.
2: So despite consuming the most spam per capita, Hawaii has the longest life expectancy of the 50 states at 81.3 years, and that edges Minnesota, which I guess makes sense since they also invented spam. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's
1: a good connection there. What's amazing to me that the state known as maybe having the most desirable weather is also the state where the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation Program decided to keep a crew in a bubble for an entire year. Back in 2016, a group of six crew members walked out of the Mars Simulator mission in Hawaii after a 12-month stay on the slopes of Mauna Loa, the famous volcano. The habitat is supposedly pretty Martian-like, or at least as Martian-like as you can find in the States, and... I don't know, though. I feel like after a couple of weeks there, I'd be like, I don't know, guys, I'm headed out to the beach too
2: much. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But speaking of Hawaiian volcanoes, one of the crazy geological features there that most people don't know about is the icy underworld inside some of the volcanoes. So these lava tubes can actually be found on Mauna Loa because of their high elevation and the way the air circulates, the perfect conditions for permanent ice are formed there. It's just crazy to think about the hundreds of thousands of people visiting each year to see the world's largest active volcano and having zero idea that under all that rock you'd find ice tunnels. Earth's pretty cool, you know?
1: I don't know, Mango. Just you using the phrase Earth's pretty cool, you know. I feel <laughs> like that uh I feel like that earns you the fact off no matter what you said, even though that is a really cool fact. So I'm gonna give you today's fact off trophy. I
2: knew that would seal the deal, but thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm sure there are some great facts about Hawaii that we didn't get to include in today's episode. We'd love to hear those from you. You can always email us, part genius at com. You can always call us on our 24-7-FACT hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS, or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
2: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
1: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
2: <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing.
4: And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex
0: Platinum card.
4: Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you did it.
0: And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's
2: the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash
4: with Amex. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new?